Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello again, and welcome to the February 2023 edition of State of Distress Debt, part of the FIC Focus podcast series, where we focus on U.S. stress, distress, and bankruptcy markets. It is February 3rd. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me, as always, our litigation analyst, Nagisa Baluku, and senior distressed analyst, Phil Brindell of Bloomberg Intelligence. In addition, super excited to bring you Phil and my conversation with Paul Goldschmidt, partner and co-portfolio manager over at King Street Capital. And we explore whether the market might be getting a little bit ahead of itself at this point in time, uh, and also a little bit of what makes King Street tick. But first, Phil, over to you. And and I don't know what to say besides like, holy camoly. Uh, you know, I think we we're both looking for a little bit of seasonal strength to start the year. But, you know, the breadth and depth at which we sort of got off through January has been pretty impressive. Uh, not least given we've got a pretty mixed earnings season going on. We've got some early bankruptcies that I know we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, and you get a Federal Reserve that, at least on the surface, seems to at least still be clinging to its messaging of higher for longer. So I guess maybe walk me through what you've seen in the landscape of distressed and, and sort of what you're looking for going forward. Hi, Noel. Yeah, no, it, it was a lot like how we expected. We expected January seasonal strength to play a role and January is the strongest month of credit, at least for distressed uh, behind, it's the second strongest behind April. Um, and sure enough, we ended a bad year, a really bad year on a low note. So some sort of correction really doesn't come as a surprise, but it, it has been uh, quite a correction. Distressed debt was up 8% in the month. The distressed ratio dropped almost two percentage points. Uh, you know, we look at the ICE B of A, U.S. High Yield Index, and that dropped two percentage points to 7.8%. Um, the market seems to get really comfortable that inflation's going to come down. And uh, our view remains that we are going to continue in a range, you know, meander, at least on the high yield, you know, this index that I look at between 100 billion of distress and 150 billion of distress. I don't think it's going to break that range. Uh, lower, and I do expect that it will break higher um, come this summer uh, because I don't believe that the peak distress ratio in this cycle will be just 10.7% from last June. We've always seen it that level of uh, at least 24% reached in previous cycles. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of, you know, a lot of enthusiasm, obviously, because people are kind of anticipating sort of a pivot in monetary policy, but a lot of sort of attention being paid to the inflation mechanic. But historically, I mean, high yield is not an asset class where I go, oh, wow, it's really sensitive to what's happening in inflation, right? Because I tend to think of that as more of an investment grade thing, but it just seems, you know, it's just a full on risk bid everywhere. So you'd mentioned maybe summer as a time for a potential turnaround. Uh, you know, I, I think if we get there, that's, you know, that's going to be, that's quite a bit of leash, or are you thinking maybe we start to maybe move a little bit sideways before we turn lower? I think it's a lot of sideways. I, I, I think what we're going to see is a, a much longer distress cycle 
than what we've seen in the past with the the shocks and uh i think you know just seasonal strength april's a very strong month for credit as i i mentioned earlier march tends to actually be a down month so i wouldn't be surprised if we're playing bouncing back in the range and uh i i don't anticipate you know you know short of some sort of catalyst one way or the other uh for for much movement there now, maybe a little bit less of a driver of your space. I think one of the things we've also seen after a pretty uh, anemic last 11 months of 2022 uh, is a little bit better issuance backdrop. We've seen some companies try to get out there and, and hit the refinancing button, uh, maybe pull forward some of those 2024 maturities. And, you know, not to front run some of our conversation with Paul, I think, uh, you know, one of the concerns that he has obviously is in the leveraged loan space. Um are you seeing anything or do you does sort of like the the change in the sort of the refinancing backdrop sort of alter any of what you're uh, seeing or thinking? Well, I think most companies had their chances to refinance during the, ironically enough the pandemic um and and so, you know, when I'm looking at you know, stress debt over 9%, it it seems to be a pretty small amount of debt that needs to uh, refinance. Um, what I do see that is a problem is uh, a lot of companies in bankruptcy, they are looking at exit financing. And, you know, I can just imagine the debtors financial advisors right now are going, wow, we used to be able to have a lot more debt capacity than we do these days. Because, you know, if exit rates are, you know, interest rates are going to be like between 10 and 15%. Um, most boards and company management teams are going to want a heck of a lot less debt than uh, lenders might want. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, definitely going to change the mechanics. I think that probably sets us up well here to turn into that uh, conversation that we were able to have with Paul Goldschmidt a little bit earlier. So let's do that now. In this February edition of State of Distress Debt, we're pleased to welcome partner and co-portfolio manager of King Street Capital, Paul Goldschmidt. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks again for your time. I uh, wonder if we might maybe just jump right in here. Uh, you know, obviously you guys are known for, for sort of dealing in the more complex end of the spectrum and dealing with distress. And it's been a while since we've had a proper distress cycle here in the U.S. So maybe you start us off with how you see the current market climate and whether you think we might finally get something in terms of just distress cycle that's a little bit more prolonged yeah well well thank you very much for having me and uh and happy to be here i am um, you know it's interesting what the markets are doing these days so the markets obviously disagree with with king street at this point but look we we think we're going to have a very interesting credit cycle over the coming years and um you know the big picture question is the direction of earnings and the direction of how broad-based earnings declines will be. And the way we think about it is monetary policy works. It takes a very long time to work, but it works. You're seeing it work. It's, it, you know, it starts in housing. It starts in credit-sensitive areas of the economy. It starts in durable goods. But it makes its way to other parts of the economy. And I guess when we look at credit, we see a lot of situations like, um, you know, the industrial com company we were looking at the other day, where it's in the $2 trillion levered loan world. Its interest rates have 
gone up 400 basis points on them in the last um, the last year. They were free cash flow positive. They're now free cash flow negative. They were bought for about 1.75 billion. You know, valuation has probably come down, and it's an industrial company. And so, the question is, will their earnings decline over the coming year? Because they have a real problem if their earnings decline. And I guess we see the levered credit market as having a lot of situations like that. And then the big picture question is, how broad-based will those earnings decline be? Our view is that they're going to be fairly broad-based. Today, the market, you know, tends to disagree with us, but um, but we think that monetary policy works, and there's a very long history of monetary policy working. So, you know, it'll it'll take time, but but we're pretty optimistic. <laughs> Optimistic in a pessimistic way. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, in, dis in distress, in distress, you have to be optimistic in a pessimistic way sometimes. All right. So, so I mean, listen, you came out of the gate pretty hot there. So there's a lot of things I maybe want to dig into. So maybe one of the first things is is, is the policy piece, right? So uh, clearly, we've been in sort of a tightening stance for the better part of the last year. Uh, you know, earlier this week, we got the Fed with the latest 25 basis point hike, but the market was ebullient, in fact, overjoyed uh, that, you know, the disinflationary talk that sort of came out of the Powell's presser uh, subsequently. So I guess, you, you know, when you see events like that and you see the market responding as enthusiastically as it did, does it worry you at all or does it sort of, I mean, because I guess, uh, you know, one of the things yeah. that's happened over the last few years is, you know, people just get impatient, right? We keep pulling forward this cycle and it doesn't really get to play out. Uh, is is there any reason to fear that or yeah, you just yeah. think it's volatility here? I mean, credit is reflexive. So you have to you have to see that reflexivity. And obviously, um, you know, uh, liquidity matters and global liquidity matters. And financial conditions are now loosening after tightening for a long period of time. And so you have to pay attention to those things. And, um, you know, one of one of the things that we were seeing over the past six to 12 months was tightening liquidity, liquidity coming out of the market. And you can see that in a variety of places in the in the credit capital markets. You can see it in as simply as AAA CLO paper went from 100 basis points of spread to 250 basis points of spread. And why did that happen? Well, there are a variety of factors, including, you know, Japanese banks and including UK pension funds and including a variety of things. But that was causing systemic issues in the levered credit markets and the levered loan markets. And so that reflexivity of, of tightening liquidity was causing a lot of issues. Now, for the time being, some of those issues are heading in the opposite direction. I guess the, the interesting question is, and the interesting market reaction to all of this is, is the Fed, is the ECB going to be okay at the end of the day with the loosening of those, those uh, financial conditions? Because they will not achieve their goals if the markets continue to loosen the way that they are. And um, and I guess the market, it's, it's hard to know exactly what the market is telling you right now, but the market may be telling you that the Fed and the ECB are okay if, um, if they don't meet their goals. You know, we tend to disagree with that. As students of history, we tend to think that Powell, um, uh, believes that he has a goal and he needs to achieve his goal, but 
um, you know, the markets are, are wavering on that. So maybe let's touch into one of the things that I think is really important, uh, because one, you mentioned years in plural, right? So kind of, and that sort of speaks to what sort of cycle are we going to get this time around versus the, the hyper-compressed cycles that we saw post-pandemic or even 2008, which was a shortish cycle relative mm -hmm. to what we saw maybe in the early 2000s or in the early 90s or that sort of thing. So, you know, in terms of when you talk about the, the, the earnings piece or sort of the repricing of loans, uh, are you looking for something a little bit longer in terms of the, the shape of this cycle? Yeah. You know, I think you're hitting on something and we talk about it a lot internally. And and we believe this is one of the things that the market is getting wrong right now. Um, between 1950 and 1990, you had a bunch of normal monetary policy driven cycles and monetary policy driven cycles take a long time. And, it, you know, as, as I was discussing, it takes a long time to slow things down, especially when you've just pumped two and a half trillion dollars of, you know, of monetary stimulus into the economy. And in those monetary policy driven cycles, things slowly s slow down. You get inflation down because demand is destroyed, unemployment picks up, consumer demand declines, and um, you know you get to your goals with inflation. The last three decades, you haven't had any of that. You've had asset bubbles burst or systemic events or pandemics where credit quickly sold off and because there was not inflation, because frankly, there was a lot of deflation, central bankers could step in and solve problems and they didn't have to worry about the policy around solving those problems because there was not a lot of inflation. And frankly, it was it was great policy. You, you did not see inflation pick up for for three decades, basically. Um, it's completely different this time in our mind, and that's going to lead to longer, broader cycles to slow down inflation. You know, I, again, hate to be the, the optimistic pessimist, um, but the reason we're excited about the coming years is because we believe we will see that play out. We believe we'll see that play out um, in a lot of very levered companies. You know, there's been four trillion, let's say, of levered credit created over the past decade um, you've literally seen these markets triple. And um, and so we think there'll be a broad based opportunity across those areas. It's not that much fun <laughs> when you actually have a systemic event. You know, 2008, there was obviously a lot of distress, but going headfirst into the housing industry when you have literally a systemic meltdown going on, that's very hard. It's actually um, a lot easier comparatively when you have a longer, broader monetary policy driven cycle. So um, those are our high level views. <laughs> so, so kind of like it, there's a framework in which to invest is sort of like this summary, right? So, yeah. so I guess maybe one of the things that you sort of alluded to there in the, in the response as well that I'd maybe uh, uh, like to dig into is uh, you talk about the four trillion sort of growth in, in the leverage credit market, but one of the things that's obviously been interesting is it's not all in the same place, right? This isn't all just, it's not the corporate market that's expanded from, you know, 600 billion to four and a half trillion or something like that. Yeah. We've got it in private credit. We've got it in leveraged loans. 
Obviously, the international markets have obviously grown as well in terms of uh, their high yield and stress markets as well. So how do you sort of tease across the the different opportunities there? Mm -hmm. uh, do you worry about the structure of the market today relative to the past? Or do you think it sort of presents opportunities, yeah. uh, particularly to somebody like King Street, where you've got, you know, the scale to really dig into a lot of these things? Yeah. You know, the market we focus on the most these days, although, as you're saying, it's broad based. But the one we're spending the most time on and frankly, throwing the most resources at is the levered loan world, because it has a number of characteristics that we find very appealing from a stressed and distressed perspective. So let's say that market is around two trillion dollars in the US and Europe, a little less than that. But let's say it's around two trillion dollars. Um, it's basically a single B, you know, so a lot of triple C's, single B, maybe some double B's dominated market. It's a lot of sponsor owned companies that are private. There are hundreds of them, obviously. And this market's a floating rate market. And, um, and basically interest rates have doubled on them in the past, you know, 12 to 18 months. So there are a lot of free cash flow issues. And the reason we're intrigued by that market is A, King Street has a $9 billion CLO manager. So we, we know all of these companies in the US and Europe, and, and we think that's a real competitive advantage. But B, um, CLOs dominate that market. It's basically 70% CLO owned. And then there's another 10 to 15% that's passive ETF and mutual funds. And there are very large constraints as to what those CLOs can do in stressed and distressed situations. They have triple C baskets. They have trouble writing new checks. As I said, the, you know, the CLO market, the new issuance market has, has basically ground to a halt. And so there's not a lot of new capital coming. And those CLOs have, you know, 100, 150 positions. And so can they really dedicate the resources to one of these names? Can Do they have the scale that there are lawyers and restructuring advisors and analysts and roll up their sleeves? Um, and there are going to be a lot of capital needs in that area. So that's probably the area we are spending the most time in. But look, commercial real estate, there's a big people talk about the maturity wall commercial real estate, you have a trillion of maturities over the next year or two. Um, there, there are a lot of areas of credit where we think there are going to be real issues. Um, you know, our favorite ones are where we think we have we have scale and competitive advantages and where others will have trouble dealing with those issues. So, Phil, I want to bring you in here now, I mean, because I know you have uh, some some sort of related concerns and, and questions related to the leverage loan space. So, so let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Noel. Um, Paul, it's great to talk to you. Um, you. What I'm trying to get a better idea of in this current market is sort of the state of mind for like a lot of the different market participants. And, you know, to, to what extent do you think, you know, how, how are leverage finance desks uh, looking at the world right now, especially you know, as they've experienced some hung up deals and, and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, they're getting they're getting a nice short term tailwind right now because there were definitely a lot of balance sheet issues and hung deals and they are getting some relief in the short term. Um, you know, 
I think a few things. One, there's been a ton of credit creation, obviously. And when you hit a period like this where um, the cycle we think is coming to an end, earnings may decline, that's going to cause indigestion. And, um, and we think a lot of levered finance desks and frankly, banks are having to deal with those issues. We don't think they're nearly as bad as they were in you know, 07, 08. We think bank balance sheets are much healthier than they were back then. But you can see it in a few areas. There are definitely a lot of hung financings um, we're looking at those very carefully. We've participated in them. We think they're a really interesting opportunity. Um, there are uh, uh, there are bank balance sheets that are that are going on right now. So um, uh, we've looked at 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 a lot of those risk transfer deals. We've done some of them where people are getting tapped on the shoulder in banks and saying, you know, your relationship loan book, your, your, your investment banking relationship loan book where you created all these revolvers, we're worried about that risk. We want you to pull back on it. And so we're looking at opportunities to provide capital to banks and frankly give them relief on, on their capital side. And we've participated in some of those and, and we're seeing more of them. Um, so, you know, this is all very normal, let's say, for a for a monetary policy driven cycle. But um, but again, credit is reflexive. And so if this continues to go on, if banks continue to pull back in credit creation, it's going to cause fundamental issues. It's going to continue to cause fundamental issues. And frankly, the other way around, it could make things better if if they move in the opposite direction. That's that's very interesting. And now if we can switch a little bit to um, the boards and the companies, when they mm -hmm. start looking at their debt load and start struggling to figure out how they're going to uh, meet their obligations. And then, and then also, you know, in tandem, how do the creditors think about it? Um, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm really trying to get a market uh, current state of the state of play, um, you know, yeah. what are the boards doing right these days? And, you know, perhaps what the, what they might be missing. And especially with the creditor on creditor violence. Is, yeah. Yeah. How's that? You know, yeah. what's the market view these days? Well, I guess let's let's go back to the um, the, the two trillion levered loan market. You. I don't think you should blame sponsors and boards for being concerned about the situation and trying with their fiduciary duties trying to protect their investors so you know in that two trillion market where a lot of companies are going free cash flow negative we will see the direction of earnings but they could go you know further in the free cash flow negative direction and valuations are coming down. If you just look in market comps, they've they've come down, but they, you know, they may continue to come down. So sponsors have large equity checks in these companies, and I think they're doing what you'd expect them to do, which is they're trying to preserve their equity and, frankly, preserve their liquidity and maybe preserve um, their lifeline, if you will. Now, that 
what sponsors are doing and what they're willing to do has changed a lot in the past few years and it's changed a lot in the last decade. Like, um, you know, 10 years ago, sponsors would not participate in creditor on creditor violence because sponsors believed, I think, that their long-term cost of capital, cost of debt might be harmed by these transactions. And the long-term implications of that were more harmful for their business than doing it in the short term for one for one situation. And, um, you know, you would see certain sponsors who might be willing to do it, but it was very rare. Now, over the last year or two, you know, there has been an absolute sea change in the willingness of sponsors to do these deals. And not only have you seen some of the best sponsors on the planet, you know, the most well-respected, the lowest cost of debt sponsors on the planet doing them, um, but you've seen them doing them in high-quality businesses. (laughs) The other thing that used to happen, you know, maybe two or three years ago is it would be, you know, retailers on their deathbed or, you know, I won't talk too badly but you you look at the list of of early creditor on creditor violence it's a bunch of you know mattresses and atm machines um high quality businesses are are starting to do this and um you know from a king street perspective i don't know if we love it from a health of the capital markets but it's a very large opportunity for scaled managers who are able to write checks and who can get their arms around the process. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a big opportunity. Now that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that actually kind of brings in a question in terms of, and you sort of alluded to it there and I, and I guess we touched on the, the loan market a couple of times here, but so I guess sourcing deals, I mean, has sourcing deals then changed? And I guess I, I kind of look at it, you know, we've been in a few different eras here and, you know, obviously we just came out of a period of relatively subdued yields where sort of creating uh, the right kind of return on capital or IRRs for an investment maybe was a little bit more challenging. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe talk us through sort of how you navigated that. And then in terms of how the landscapes changed in, in terms of what you just mentioned with the creditor and creditor dynamic you know, whether that changes how you go about sourcing deals today. Yeah. So the way we're we're organized is we don't have any silos. We have 250 people around the world and we're a multi-strat credit fund. So we are just going to go where we think the dislocations are, where we think there's too little capital or too much capital on the short side. And you know, that's that's the way we think that large credit managers should be organized where, um, you know, we don't have to go anywhere and we don't have to go anywhere, in, including distress. I would say, you know, the nature of distress is that things often come to you. <laughs> um, you know, you're you can look at the headlines of, of Adani today, you know, Things often come to you. Bond prices fall by 20 points and and that's suddenly a distressed opportunity. So there's plenty of that in in stressed and distressed. But the way we're organized is that um, we believe that trading and research and capital markets and legal should all come together and make decisions together and and sourcing should come from all of those places not just one that's the way we're organized that's the way we think you know the best decision making and so 
really the entire organization is is constantly sourcing and you know we've we've organized ourselves with a nine billion dollar clo manager because we think we want to have our you know hands in all the places where where opportunity may come from and that maybe sort of leads into you know a related question which is just sort of like the culture of the organization i mean obviously uh, you, you know, you guys have been around for a long time, been successful for a long time. You know, is there sort of a, a, a sort of a cultural thrust that you think has sort of enabled some of that success? Sure. So, um, look, the 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 opportunistic, the global opportunistic, we think is a is a great cultural benefit because sometimes the best opportunities are not in distressed or bankrupt companies. Sometimes the best distressed opportunities are in investment grade. <laughs> Sometimes they're in structured credit. Sometimes they're in real estate. And, you know, during April and May of 2020, during COVID, 80% of our longs were in investment grade credit. So we think the ability to on a relative value, look across the world and across all credit asset classes will lead to to better risk adjusted returns. But, um, you know, we what we constantly ask ourselves is what's our competitive advantage? Like, why? Why can we um, produce the returns that that we can? And so, you know, what do we love? We love very strong businesses or assets, because on the most basic level, we think that generally protects principal over time. So owning good businesses and good assets protects principal, and it avoids mistakes. And in credit, mistakes are really bad. You, you know, making, making mistakes can, can really harm your long-term return. So high-quality businesses and assets. And then we just love situations where um, there's enough complexity or enough emotions or a problem with allocation of capital and, and too little capital. There's something going on and some reason why we're like, you know, King Street can can really have a competitive advantage here. And when we see that, we throw a lot of resources at it. And um, and so we build those scale advantages when we see it. And, you know, that's what we get up and, and look for every day. Some days you don't see it, but it, you'd be surprised how often you see it. Now, you mentioned sort of the, the mistakes, right? So, and, and obviously credit being a very asymmetric asset class, right? So, so I guess maybe, you know, that also brings up because none of us are, uh, are perfect. So when you do encounter something, maybe you got a, you know, you got wrong footed in a position, like, you know, when do you make the call in terms of like, let's throw in the, throw in the towel. Yeah. We actually do it a fair amount. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that too often I think people in in stressed and distressed credit they make a mistake. The most common one is getting involved in a business or an asset that's just very low quality, and it feels like there's a cyclical problem, but there's actually a much bigger secular fundamental issue and i think that's the biggest mistake that's made in distress but um but instead of doubling your bet or doubling down sometimes in those situations you 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 have a tendency to want to get more involved and fight it out for those declining dollars in in a zero-sum sort of way and cutting your 
<laughs> cutting it early is often the best decision. And we do a lot of that. Um, you know, there have been very big mistakes made putting good money after bad, getting in deeply involved in complexity. And from our standpoint, we're able to look at everything and anything credit globally. There's, you know, there's a resource cost. There's a time cost. Like there's a time sink. Like aren't there betty, better uses for that, um, you know, intellectual capital as well? I'm going to bring in, uh, so so Rob Stark of uh, Brown Rudnick, who you may know, uh, so he joined us last month and he made a, I'm going to horribly uh, mutilate his quote here, but it was something to the effect of, if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. So it sounds like you're sort of feeding to into that zeitgeist in terms of, you know, you, you want to be at the table in these sorts of situations. That's how you're going to really control or at least have enough visibility to be able to make that call. Is that fair? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um you know, internally, we call it the three B's, um, which are balance sheet, breath, um, and, um, uh, <laughs> well, I'll go through balance sheet and breath. But um, uh, from balance sheet perspective, you need to be able to write checks. Um, you need to have enough capital where you matter as a creditor and... Um, and that's going to be really important for these situations that, that that need capital. And, you know, frankly, they need to be doing these creditor on creditor deals. And it matters if you're large or small, you know, in terms of breadth, being able to look at the two trillion dollar levered loan market, you know, being able to look at those hundreds of companies really matters. You know, having the experience really matters, um, you know, frankly, um, knowing all of the advisors, knowing the restructuring lawyers, knowing all of the creditors really matters. Um, the third B is brand. And, um, you know, that's that's going to be the the repeat actor mentality that goes on. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that people know when they're dealing with King Street, they can trust us. We're going to be fair. We're going to be reasonable. We're going to be someone they want to work with. That's not to say we aren't going to, um, you know, assert our legal rights and, you know, fight it out in the mud if we need to. But brand is is really important. And even in these creditor on creditor deals, remember, it's creditors harming other creditors. You don't want to be a creditor that others are willing to harm or want to harm. Um, and so brand is is really important. Unfortunately, in some of these, you know, in many of these situations, it's passive predators who are getting harmed, who don't have the brand and who people don't believe will be around for the next 30 years. And so there are no long term ramifications of harming them. And, you know, we we think it's really important to have our our brand well known. So I guess what they need to do is first maybe get a bunch of monogrammed uh, vests and hats <laughs> and, yeah. and start from there. But uh, uh, do I we'll do a podcast it. here and there? <laughs> uh, only this podcast, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so before I turn it over to Phil, because I know he really wants to get into the process here because uh, he's big into the nitty gritty. I do want to sort of maybe uh, see if you might sort of enlighten us with maybe a, a specific situation that sort of you think really sort of captures the complexity that, that you thrive on over at King street. Yeah. You know, the, um, 
<laughs> the seminal example, if you will, for King Street has to be Lehman Brothers, where, um, you know, it had it had everything you'd always dream of from a King Street perspective, from a scale advantage perspective. So it had a massive amount of debt. Let's say there was, you know, 200 plus billion of debt, but there were 100 billion of bonds, 30 billion of of Netherlands Finco bonds. And, and most of that debt was issued at a holding company. And what did you own as a bondholder? Well, you owned a bunch of intercompany claims into other bankrupt Lehman entities around the world. And there were 20 plus of them. So you could not possibly analyze a bond unless you knew the recoveries from all of those entities around the world in different jurisdictions. So, you know, Germany and Switzerland and Hong Kong and Japan and the UK and regulated entities and unregulated entities. And so when we see a situation like that, where we we look at it and we say, who can possibly see that? How, who can possibly analyze this? You need experience across all these jurisdictions. And by the way, you need to be able to analyze the underlying assets and the best part about Lehman is the underlying assets were actually pretty good. They were financial assets. They were real estate. They were private equity. You know, they own parts of hedge funds. Um, so the underlying assets we actually liked. And um, and it was exactly the sort of situation where we threw 30 people at Lehman. We threw, you know, half our legal team was working on on Lehman. We had restructuring advisors. Um, that's the sort of situation that we love. A Lehman Brothers does not come around every day, obviously, but you know, we're when, thankful. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but look, like when we see Hertz during COVID with first liens and second liens and European Finco and ABS securitizations and you know valuation fights, claims being created around the world. When we see Caesars, when we see Pacific Gas and Electric, those are situations where we're like, we like the underlying asset and there are real competitive advantage possibilities for scaled players. And so we throw a lot of assets at those situations. That's really fascinating. Uh, you know, 30 people. It's. It, it, I, and I, I, as Noel said, I, I, I'm really interested in the distressed investment process. And, you know, from, from that perspective, maybe just to keep on Lehman, um, you know, when you have 30 people like that who were, you know, you that that great international legal focus might be applicable to Lehman. But like, how do you find the talent to that they can like pivot to something else down the road and and how do you guys scale up scale yeah. down because i think that's that's i i know a lot of shops who go hey this would be great if i could do scenario analysis on you know whether we're going to get that malaysian recovery or not but yeah, they yeah. just kind of throw yeah. up their hands and make you know some some quick you know quick and dirty and it doesn't sound like that's good enough and i, I guess yeah look it, it's um scale really matters in distress and we think scale continues to matter and there are 
downsides of scale. There are certain, you know, $100 million balance sheet situations where King Street says, you know what, like, this isn't going to move the needle if we own five or 10 million and it's going to have a lot of resources. And there are small distressed funds where that where that may move the needle. But um, but once you get scale and you have 250 people and, you know, what are we looking for in our people? We're looking for people who love what they do, who, who love this stuff. I love this stuff. I may be a little strange, but I love this stuff. And um, and so we're looking for great assets or, you know, great intellectual assets. We, we, we think we've found a lot of them. And we just want athletes who are multifaceted and can look at a variety of things and love digging into complexity. And uh, and that's how that's how we filled the organization. That's that's fascinating. The uh, the other angle is uh, the litigation that you might have some of the best. And, and you know, you're aware and I, I certainly am aware uh, you can have situations where, uh, you know, the Citibank um, Revlon lenders thing was interesting because like. You had on one turn, they said, oh, you'll, you'll be able to uh, get your money. You can keep your money. And then they told them, no, you got to return it. And I guess I'm just wondering with, you know, litigation situations in general, mm-hmm. um, how do you like for Lehman, for example, you, there were probably like court battles overseas. How do you balance the weight, you know, the, and, and, yeah, and yeah. measure that stuff and, and hedge against it? And I guess it, any color there you would know, be wonderful. Yeah, you know, litigation is one of our favorite scale advantages. And I don't want to give out too much secret sauce of King Street. But um, uh, what we find is that litigation is often across, we call them boxes, across multiple boxes in a bankruptcy. And so in, in Lehman, you know, you had literally 20 different entities fighting each other over assets and fighting each other over intercompany claims. Um for most credit funds that let's say they have, I don't know, 20 people, um, what can they really do? They look at one of those boxes and they say, I like this bankruptcy litigation claim. It seems like a winner, you know, risk adjusted. Here's where I want to create it. By the way, we don't love doing that because we always think about protecting principle and Losing in litigation is not a good way of protecting principle, and so we don't like binary litigation bets. But most funds, they have enough scale to look at one of those entities. And so they say, we're going to own the German entity, and we're going to fight it out over assets, and we think that's the winner. But they price that German entity on a return basis where, because it's a binary outcome, they need a really nice return – because they don't know how long it's going to take, they need a really nice return. And, you know, frankly, all the complexity, they need a really nice return to do the work. What we actually find is if you look at the strip, as we call it, it if you look across all of those entities, and if you have the scale to look across all of those entities and can do the legal work one after another, you can actually create a much better risk-adjusted return owning all of them (laughs) in bankruptcy and not caring about who wins, only caring about what are the underlying assets worth, how long will this take, you know, length of time is important. And by the way, 
it's reflexive because in Lehman Brothers, where we did this, um, you can get scaled enough where you can help create a compromise that brings down the amount of time that it takes. And you can work in between those entities. And by the way, everyone loves you and it helps your brand because you're helping to get to a compromise. And so, um, you know, again, Lehman is unique, but you would be surprised if you looked across litigations and bankruptcy, how often this happens and how, how often this is mispriced. And we find it to be one of our favorite scale areas. That's uh, yeah, no, I, I love that concept. Also considering, uh, you know, th there's a time is so expensive because the professional fees can be so much. I mean, I think of Nortel where like you had $7 billion sit of cash sitting and the litigation, uh, there was 2 billion of fees and yeah. it was like over yeah. seven years. And I'm like, if you had people on both ends with big yeah. size positions, pushing a settlement it probably could yeah. have been a lot quicker. And look, we, we put on that trade in, in Nortel to be frank. Um, but, um, but yeah, look, that's a, that's an element that is becoming, uh, a bigger and bigger issue. You know, you brought up an example, but expensive litigation and expensive bankruptcy processes in general are fairly alarming and um you know when when we look at crypto bankruptcies these days um really complex <laughs> really interesting you know the sort of thing that um that king street could probably figure out and others can't figure out but the amount of time that you're looking at and the amount of expense that you're looking at to unravel these situations and, and frankly, the lack of underlying assets that we really believe in in most of these situations, um, you, you have to be very careful. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I, I, I remember in Nortel, like coming across a tome on the allocation of international IP. And I was just like, oh, my God, this just wasn't needed if you just had people on each side, like kind of looking for rough justice. And it's but with crypto, as you point out, because there was just so much disorganization up front to like, you know, you, they really are trying to, you know, put the genie back in the box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul, w one thing that I'm really interested is it, it, when it comes to like uh, risk reward targets, uh, you know, is, is so, sometimes. You know, and I remember this happening to me when, when I was at the asset manager I worked for. Um, you know, I, I AccuRide was a good example. We cut a deal. We announced. You know, it became public, and my bonds shot up to a level, and I still had my backstop commitment, so I could make the new investment. But the bonds, which I knew were going to get, you know, a piece of the equity, uh, you know, because of what they were, but they shot up to a level where I and this happened more than once, I'd sell them almost immediately afterwards and just get people to sign on for the rights offer. All mm -hmm. the whole, the only point in coming, you know, in describing that is a lot of times things hit your reward target yeah. faster than you might imagine. And, and I'm just wondering, how do you guys play the, you know, balance? You have a relationship with these companies often, 
you know, where you talk to them and, you know, they're expecting you to kind of be around. But at the same time, you're working for your fund, Matt, your, your funds, you know, your clients. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you see a wonderful opportunity, it might be time to get out. And I just, yeah. if you could discuss that. Yeah. You know, uh, we talked, I talked about quality. I talked about quality of business, quality of assets. There are other important areas to why we like high quality businesses and assets outside of, you know, they're good at protecting principal on a fundamental basis. We also like them because they're large, you know, they're generally larger businesses. They have bigger balance sheets, they're scaled players, they're market leaders, and you can leave when the investment works. And as I said, you know, we're multi-strat credit funds, so we're rotating capital into the most interesting situations, whether they're distressed or stressed or IG. Um, The ability to do that, the ability to leave when you want to leave is very important for us. Um, You know, we talk about competitive advantages. Our competitive advantage generally is not that we're going to be on the board and turn around the business and, you know, try to try to ride this thing for years. Um, You know, in fact, (laughs) one of our favorite investments is we find a solvent business, a great business, a great asset, whether it's pipelines in 2015 or European industrial companies in 2012 or, you know, even cruise lines and leadership companies during COVID. We find a great company or a great asset that we think is absolutely solvent. The market doesn't think that for the time being. And we're playing that that's only a temporary condition. The credit markets will believe they're insolvent for a temporary amount of time. And then we leave <laughs> when, 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 uh, when it's April 2021 and the market believes that, you know, COVID is no longer an issue. And, you know, all these high yield and IG positions that we think were completely solvent and great businesses, we leave when, you know, when it becomes 2016, 2017. And people believe that Williams is completely solvent and they didn't know why they thought it was insolvent. And it's an IG company. We leave. Um, that is uh, that's sort of critical for for our for our model as well. Yeah, no, I find that interesting. Uh, you know, and I, I definitely hear you when it comes to I remember thinking my favorite distressed investment is one where I don't have to get on a committee. I can just buy a bond at 50 to 60 cents and it goes to par. Um, yeah. In this and and also I, I, I tend to agree with you that we are in a different kind of distress cycle than what we've seen with these systemic shocks. Um, and, you know, as we think about it and we're in this higher rate environment and if inflation is a little bit more sticky than what people are anticipating, at least the current market in the past month. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how does that affect your thinking around, you know, the the securities and, you know, and I'm specifically thinking that the fulcrum instruments in in a lot of these companies, um, you know, one of the things that struck me in looking at names recently is the high current uh, a coupon on a lot of yeah. their debt and 
that even if you restructure these companies, the cash flow that they're generating currently or, you know, maybe even in a, in a good day when they exit is simply not enough to pay these hefty coupons. And and so yeah. I'm like, there's a there's probably going to have to be a lot more debt shaving than than we've seen in previous cycles. And, you know, I, I just wonder, yeah. hear your thoughts on that matter. I mean, maybe our favorite area of the capital markets right now are post bankruptcy financings or even in bankruptcy financings, because we think there's too little capital in that area and you're getting paid too much to lend to companies that are especially if they're high quality businesses that are coming out of bankruptcy. But as you say, there are major implications to that. If your cost of debt is 13 or 14 percent coming out of bankruptcy, what is the implication to your, you know, levered free cash flow return if you're an equity holder? Um, it's not very good. You know, I, I talk about the levered loan market where because it's floating rate, because there wasn't enough hedging, you get immediate ramifications to these rates moves. But obviously, if rates don't come down, you're going to have major ramifications for the credit markets in general as as fixed rate debt comes you know, to maturities as well or as refinancings occur. And so you can't lose sight of that. Um, you know, we like the debt side of these businesses because we think it's um it's a place where there's too little capital but you cannot ignore the ramifications from an equity perspective and and obviously you know the sponsors in that two trillion loan market the sponsors are realizing this issue and that's why a lot of these you know creditor on creditor deals are happening yeah no it's 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 pretty amazing because like like Party City, which just filed, you know, the, their bonds were below 10 cents on the dot. Those are first lien bonds that were just done in 2021. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and look, you could say you're, they you're, deflated. Uh, oh, look at that. Yes, I'm here all day. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, the situations where you're still going to have a fair amount of debt, that debt's going to be very expensive earnings may not be growing, they may be declining, are going to lead to needs for capital, needs for equity checks, and needs for equity checks in a market where, you know, it, it seems wonderful today, but, you know, people are not reaching into their pocket as much as they used to. They're concerned about all these fundamental issues. So, um it is really raising the cost of capital across stressed and distressed. We we will see what direction that goes in over the next year or two. With um, but it's pretty interesting. With exit structures, you know, I I I I wonder if like with this cycle, are are we going to see more um, you know you know rights offerings where people are getting back you know there there, there might be a reluctance depending on if there's a lot of debt, but uh, convertibles, uh, that sort of thing. Do you guys have a, a playbook for how you like uh, uh, a, um, you know, an exit structure or exit security to look like? Yeah. As, as credit investors and um, frankly, as, as credit investors where, um, you know, 
we like to capture a dislocation and then leave. Okay. We like we like credit coming out of a bankruptcy more than we like writing an equity check. And, you know, that's just King Street. But um, from our perspective, there will need to be a lot of equity checks, a lot of rights offerings and bankruptcy processes, also because there's not enough capital in that area generally. And so your willingness to write a check, you'll get paid for it. And Again, not to, you know, not to go back to the levered loan world, but there are just a lot of creditors who cannot write a check. Like it is not possible for them to write a check. And so if you can come in with a check, you're going to get paid for it. There's probably going to be an opportunity. And so, um, you know, we're, we're facing the reality of that situation and we're willing to write checks. But from a risk adjusted perspective, we certainly like a nice a nice debt position, even, you know, a convertible debt position more than straight equity. Definitely. Um, and my, my, my final question is, uh, you know, given your firm's, you know, great track record uh, successes, you know, or, you know, maybe some of the worst outcomes that you've, you've had, um, could you please share with our listener any valuable lessons you've you learned through, uh, you know, maybe one example. Uh, I found in my own experience that there are inevitably strands of good and bad luck during proceedings um, that can impact trading prices. But often, um, you know, it's an underlying theme that you might have like, you know, held on to or investment protection that you put into a piece of paper, you know, that, uh, you know, manifests itself amid the noise. And, you know, any example would be welcomed here. Yeah. And I just want to append that it's listeners. Uh, there, there will be more than one listener to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> so, go ahead. Here we, I, I didn't even mention coming in that I am a listener of this podcast. So, uh, so you'll at least have me on the, on the other side. Um, you know, e- examples of, of where we've made mistakes. I'll, I'll give you... Um, you know, we we've made enough mistakes in our career, but the ones that I, the ones that I really regret, and the ones that we've exited, um, God, the shrinking pie, the making a mistake on quality of business or quality of asset, I hate that, and it's why we we really have avoided areas like like retail, like department stores, like you know things that are that are constantly you're coming in contact with fads or fashion or, or bad businesses. Um, you know, we then make the mistake in those situations where we get attracted by complexity. We get contracted, we get attracted by a, by a process fight or a process element. Um, you know, it's topical today, uh, as it's, um, going through its second restructuring, but, Boy, the first time around, you know, it's the fourth player in in Brazil Mobile. It has a fixed wireline business that are not really in the big cities. It's sort of the you know the less urban cities. The first time around, there were a lot of there's a lot of complexity. It was a tiny position for King Street, but um, 
but you really regret getting involved because of the complexity and in, in situations like that where there's a shrinking pie. I would say the the other thing is that from a policy perspective, and there's a lot of policy in large bankruptcies, you really want to be on the right side of policy. And you don't want to be taking a legal argument or a um, contractual argument that is on the wrong side of policy in my mind, because judges are human beings and policymakers are human beings. And, um, and so we don't like to fight that tide. You know, luckily, we've probably made less mistakes there. And but, um, but it's certainly something, something we think about. And then, you know, on the positive side, it's, it's back to what I said, it's, um, when you see a situation where there's a high quality asset and a lot of complexity, um, you got like you got to throw resources at it and you shouldn't miss the opportunity when they come along. So we spend a lot of time trying to make sure we don't we don't miss those opportunities. Yeah, no, I, I, I that, that that's that's perfect, because, you know, when I think of. You know, the the whole reason to exist and, you know, being a, a great business, that's that's kind of the North Star for in distressed investing, isn't it? it it's like s something that's going to be lasting, not something that's fleeting. And it, mm. I, I, I've caught myself getting involved in that complexity, you know, challenge as well. And, you know, fascination and it, it can certainly lead to wrong decisions. Well, you know, like we're all we all love what we do. That's right. And we love complexity. And so you love those really tricky situations where, wow, like all these creditors are fighting over this pie and who's going to win. But you need to go to 30,000 feet and say, do we want to own this business? Do we want to own this asset? Is this a growing pie? Because in growing pies, people stop fighting. You know, Nortel, you brought it up. Right. People stop fighting because the pie suddenly grew a lot. And, you know, they they want to fight a lot at 15 cents on the dollar. But when they're recovering par, you know, they, they can fight a lot less. And so, um, you know, you, um, you, you definitely have to stay at that 30 foot, 30,000 foot level as well. That's awesome. So a very metaphysical note on which to sort of conclude <laughs> this month's podcast. But I certainly want to uh, thank Paul, uh, the optimistic pessimist, which I guess is uh, uh, maybe a, a pen. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should get T-shirts made. But um, Yeah, exactly. But certainly want to thank you for your time and all the thoughts. Uh, it's been great having you. Uh, and with that. Uh, let's go ahead and turn back to our topics of coverage here in BI. Thank Great. you. Thank you. So turning now, uh, I guess, to, to some of the things that we're looking at internally, uh, nothing more, uh, I, I think, sort of interesting uh, and relevant than what we've seen most recently out of uh, uh, the J&J &J hearing. So let's bring in Nagisa Baluku here to, to sort of walk us through uh, not only uh, what we learned uh, most recently, but also what the implications might be for sort of related types of issues as they tie to things like GM, or excuse me, 3M. I always want to say GM there, but uh, 3M as well. Nagisa? Hi, Noel. Thanks. Uh, so we do finally have a ruling from the Third Circuit reversing the New Jersey Bankruptcy Court 
and dismissing uh, J&J's uh, bankruptcy, the bankruptcy of its talc unit. Uh, so we've talked about this a lot. A lot has been said about this. Sort of to very briefly summarize what's happened here is that uh, a little over a year ago, J&J attempted what is called a Texas two-step. So basically pursuant to a Texas statute, it separated its talc liabilities from its assets, put the liabilities into a new sub, and then filed that sub into bankruptcy. It was very procedurally complex. It sort of took place in the span of like hours, days. Uh, the case was filed in North Carolina, and then it transferred to New Jersey. Uh, the first thing J&J did was ask to extend the bankruptcy's automatic stay to the parent. So it was a J&J talc unit that filed, LTL management, and then it sought to extend the automatic stay to the parent. And if successful, the whole goal was to achieve what uh, sort of outside of a small handful of companies who are currently attempting this in North Carolina just has never been done before. To basically allow solvent company like J&J uh, use bankruptcy to settle all of its tort liabilities related to tal claims. Uh, the key challenge, there could be, there would be many challenges to this, but the first one was uh, this idea of bad faith. Basically, the bankruptcy wasn't filed in good faith. Uh, the J&J court, uh, just uh, approximately just a year ago, sided with J&J. So it decided that the case was filed in good faith. It extended the state to uh, the parent and lost it stopped. Uh, since then, the company has been free to uh, settle its cases in bankruptcy. Uh, so it's been over a year, basically. As is often the case with these cases, the case, the appeal got expedited to what to the Third Circuit. And we had been waiting for that case for just over four months. Uh, uh, so what... And, and what happened uh, on January 30th is that the Third Circuit reversed the bankruptcy court. Uh, and why? I mean, there could be many ways to have done this, but it all came down to basically Johnson & Johnson being too generous, in a way, uh, to with this bankruptcy. The cornerstone, the cornerstone of a Texas two-step has always been, uh, is, has been in the case of J&J's, is funding agreement. The purpose is to fund the bankruptcy and the ultimate settlement with some source of funding. In this case, in J&J's case, that funding was had this floor of $61 billion that happened to be the value of all JJCI, which was a previous sub that held assets and talk liabilities. So the whole point was to just take those liabilities away and leave the assets outside of bankruptcy and those assets, 61, 61 and a half billion dollars, became available to pay this, uh, the, this claims. Uh, while the Third Circuit, as I said, the Third Circuit faced several legal, it could, it could, it could have gotten many ways to treat this case, but it really it answered only whether the chapter filing was done in good faith. And in doing that, it focused particularly on this idea of financial distress. It said the financial distress is vital to the good faith legal standard. It's still quite, it's still good faith is not defined in the bankruptcy code. Sort of courts uh, can define it, define their own way of defining it. But the, the, the Third Circuit said that without financial distress, uh, there's no reason for the J&J talk unit to have filed for Chapter 11. Um, in terms of financial distress at the J&J level, as opposed to more broadly at, at the subsidiary, right? 
No, it's actually oh, no. financial financial distress as a subsidiary because even though the subsidiary only had liabilities, it had this funding agreement, which was a huge asset. This funding agreement that was worth a floor of which was worth $61 billion. So it said there's just no reason for it to file because it has this funding agreement, even though it looks like just a sub that holds liability. Um, the court, besides that the court was also optimistic, at least more optimistic, I guess, that the bankruptcy court was about sort of J&J potential favor settlement in bankruptcy, a big driver to the bankruptcy. Uh, some would say maybe J.J. was somewhat denied, perhaps. That was this $2.24 billion verdict, the income verdict that uh, J&J that was against J&J right before, just shortly before the filing. Obviously, $2.24 billion, a huge verdict when you think of thousands of, of talks that J&J faces that could obviously raise a lot of concerns for the company. Um, that said, I mean, I think there is this possibility of uh, a theoretical uh, possibility, at least, of having a successful Texas two-step by funding a funding agreement, I guess, just enough to not violate the fraudulent transfer laws, but also not enough to still live this new entity in financial distress. And it's sort of unclear to me and uh, whether that's possible, but it sort of still leaves, there's still sort of this this potential out there. Uh, the, as far as J&J goes, I think the court was very careful to point out that this decision doesn't mean that J&J uh, can sort of go out now, drop this funding agreement, uh, or at least lower it and then enter bankruptcy again in a month, few months. Um, the court said you can't do that. And that's that's particularly because of fraudulent transfer concerns here. You can't just give up ca cash or funding that you had uh, without getting anything in return. So at least for two years, for sort of the bankruptcy court, JJ cannot go back in bankruptcy. Uh, and there's still more to the case. Yes, there was a reversal at the Third Circuit. Uh, the only remedy for it is dismissal. There's no other way around, such as you just cannot be bankruptcy anymore. Uh, but that said, uh, I, I'd imagine JJ will file what we'd call a petition and bonk, so just uh, asking the full appeal panel, the full appeals court, to review the case again. Those requests are rarely granted, though they, they can be. Uh, and the next step is, of course, uh, trying to petition for U.S. Supreme Court review. Um, so, so is the summary here that uh, we're, we're, well, uh, you know, petition aside, that we're kind of done with J and J for a little while? Is that uh... if if those efforts fail, especially the Supreme Court petition, <clears throat> that that probably has uh, that's probably what we're looking into next. Uh, that yes, with J and J, we are done now. What does this case mean for other Texas two steps, or what does it mean for 3M, which is not a Texas two step, though very similar sort of an approach and what it's trying to do? It's unclear. It's not good news, of course, but this is spread out among circuits. The other Texas two step cases are in North Carolina, so the Fourth Circuit, and 3M is in the Seventh Circuit. So it doesn't help 3M. Uh, in 3M, their earplug unit is appealing the bankruptcy court decision to the Seventh Circuit. Um, and there, it's actually sort of a similar approach. The Indiana Bankruptcy Court there refused to extend the bankruptcy protections to the bankruptcy state to 3M, based primarily sort of in this idea of uh, this earplug unit is in bankruptcy having 
3M's uncapped commitment to fund all your plug liabilities. And uh, the question is different in 3M. It was a question of whether or not to extend the automatic stay. It wasn't whether or not the case was filed in good faith, like it was in J&J, so there's not. Uh, but, uh, but this funding agreement was part of the central part of both these bankruptcies, and it became sort of the downfall of both of these bankruptcies, at least for in 3M's case, at the bankruptcy court level. Um, uh, there's, uh, again, pointing out there's such different circuits. It doesn't, they, the Seventh Circuit does not have to look at the Third Circuit, so it doesn't have to agree with it. If they don't agree, this sort of sets the case even more up for Supreme Court review, most likely. So uh, I think people are always interested by timings of the decisions. I guess the last thing I'd say on 3M, uh, based on what the filings are looking right now, I'd say we probably expect a decision there in the second half of this year. So maybe a philosophical question. I open up this to both of you since you're both sort of in that space. Do rulings like this, do, do we think they're good uh, for bankruptcy overall to kind of say, okay, listen, these well-capitalized debtors that are, you know, basically trying, uh, uh, you know, I would think of it as financial engineering, but I guess this would be bankruptcy engineering or whatever else in order to sort of limit liabilities or whatever else. Do we think it's good that uh, the courts are sort of coming down and saying, mm, maybe not so much? Or, or do we not think it really matters much? Uh, so, I mean, there's just, this is a very, we could speak of days on this, and there's a lot of policy questions and all that. Questions always good for who, right? Uh, that's that's really, but but I do think what they do point out. Spoken like a true day, lawyer, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, but I think at the, at, at the end of the day, I think they do point out to, certain benefits of the bankruptcy system that certain parties may wish to sort of extend to other systems, say the MDL, for example, uh, whether it's efficiency or, or sort of this ability to bind future claimants, those are unique to bankruptcy that you cannot get outside of it. And those aspects, I think, could be helpful to this type of issues outside of bankruptcy, but then uh, Certainly, uh, when it comes to trials and, and those types of questions, uh, what plaintiffs' lawyers would say is that plaintiffs should, uh, trial courts are there for a reason, and plaintiffs should be guiding that selection and should be allowed to do that. Phil, any thoughts on that? My only thought is that, you know, I, I, I think from Johnson & Johnson's perspective, it, this is the... Uh, you know, heads I win, tails you lose, um, you know, th that they view bankruptcy court as a better forum to be doing these settlements, you know, from a practical perspective uh, over the, you know, multi-district, uh, you know, uh, that you'd have outside of bankruptcy. Um, and even if they get pushback like this, they can keep proceeding, and although the, I guess the stays lifted, um, you know, it, it just seems that they can, I, you know, delay works for them. Uh, any delay where they don't have to, uh, you know, pay out is it works for their shareholders. So, uh, you know, I view it as a, probably a, a good decision in in terms of, you know, getting the right law. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, the plaintiffs in all the different states and it just it gets messy. And bankruptcy, you know, which is a court of equity, has gotten pretty good at this. 
So I don't know. It's, 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 as, as the Gisa said, <laughs> All right. I'm not even so, a lawyer and I'll say the same thing. All right. So a couple of wishy-washy answers. I appreciate that. Um, all right. So let's let's maybe uh, change gears a little bit here. And, and uh, you know, I want to save crypto for last. We've talked a lot about crypto. So let's maybe go to actual bankruptcy. Um, that you, you know, can understand? Of, that I can understand, having covered <laughs> retail for many, many, many years. But uh, so obviously, we just recently got uh, Bed Bath & Beyond that entered their grace period. So, you know, maybe they're on deck here, which isn't going to surprise really anybody. But we did get Party City sort of rolling uh, into the courts there. So, Phil, maybe catch us up uh, with what our latest dynamics are in the, uh, I guess that's not really a celebration, but uh, with the party. Yeah, Party City filed for bankruptcy in, in January. And it, it was kind of interesting. Uh, it, well, first off, Party City is a vertically integrated retailer. Uh, so I think if you trace it back, there's a company within it called Ampscan that provides all that imports all these uh, party favors uh, from China, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to the 1940s. Um, but now they have about an 800 store footprint in the United States. Um, and, uh, the, in, you know, what I found interesting about it, it wasn't so much the pandemic, although that didn't help. But it was really just recently uh, inflation just wreaked havoc. And you can imagine as a vertically integrated retailer, you know, they were they were hit um, by increases in raw materials and and just all across the uh, all across the product chain. And um, so that pushed costs higher. And despite a successful 2020 exchange where they actually did cut their debt load by about 500 million. they filed for you know the usual reasons. We're we're not making money anymore. We made two, uh, Party City made two hundred seventy million in two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty one. It actually made the same amount. So that's pre pandemic and kind of at the tail end of pandemic. But then two thousand twenty two came and this these inflationary pressures. Uh, they they only made one hundred thirty nine million dollars of EBITDA, um, and they've got about one point six billion dollars of debt. So that didn't really add up. Uh, liquidity was really what drove it in. And um, the the other interesting facet of this bankruptcy is the concentration. Um, there's four uh, note holders in the ad hoc group. It's Capri, Silverpoint, Davidson, Kepner, and Monarch. And Capri and Silverpoint in particular uh, own 47% of uh, the first lien notes. So um, you've got a very concentrated group that the company is working with, and um, they've basically funded 150 million dip financing that's really going to roll right into a rights offering. So what's interesting about that is when you have a dip that's planning on being replaced by a rights offering, chances are there's not a whole lot of debt getting um, there's not a lot of debt capacity there because usually if there's any kind of debt uh, being distributed out it's going to you know potentially uh, you know people who are at the top of the capital structure um, anyway so is there a sense of whether this is a, is this a restructuring is it a liquidation is it we're gonna carve oh, it's, out pieces it's it's gonna be a reorganization the company has a business plan that calls for 272 million dollars in 2025 of EBITDA. In terms of EBITDA? Yeah. yeah and you know this 150 million that they're funding 
the it's it's going to be an extremely quick bankruptcy. There, it's a five month maturity on the dip. Um, they're they're going to come go in and out. Um, they're going to there, there's actually provisions uh, where the dip can roll right into equity. Um, there's additional fees if you do that. Um, and you know I I back of the envelope because they haven't actually ha don't don't have a plan equity value out there or or an enterprise value at which the rights offerings taking place. I made some basic assumptions and I came up to. I think the rights offering could account for maybe two thirds of the equity, um, maybe six percent of the equity goes to the backstop fee, and you know maybe the first lien notes, which were trading under ten cents on the dollar, um, gets twenty eight percent of this reorganized equity. Um, all of the and I I think maybe I should go over the debt here. Um, there's also this anagram, which they make the foil balloons. And they're kind of left out of the bankruptcy, even though it's wholly owned by uh, Party City. And so, um, it's one of my favorite word games, by the way. <laughs> anagram, huh? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I know you were deeply interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I certainly know my wife is doing her part uh, in terms of keeping them, uh, keeping the EBITDA flowing there, uh, as we've had balloons in our house, kind uh, <laughs> nonstop for a little while now. So I guess that's all plus, but it doesn't sound like we're trying to reject a lot of leases here or anything else like that, that maybe most of the, the store base is staying open and, and sort of going to be part of the, the post-reorg entity. Is that, uh, is that fair? That's very fair. This is not Bed Bath & Beyond. This is going to be... This, <laughs> I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll save that one for uh, I, the March podcast. I suspect we'll have the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I am. They, they, are, they are going to take advantage of it to close any, uh, you know, poor performing stores. That's for, you know, they, they laid that out in their business plan, but they're looking to free capital up so that they can uh, invest in uh, refurbishment. There was significant disclosure on the business plan, which is uh, great to see when you're looking at these companies from a public perspective. Um, but just generally, I think this is going to be quick in and out. I think, you know, I think there was a news article about equity potentially like trying to organize i you know look like most distress situations unless you're bringing a big checkbook um you know you're not going to really get much traction in bankruptcy court uh you, you know there's valuation arguments sort of don't work unless you're actually backing it up with a checkbook interesting so maybe a good chance to to pivot now to to a bankruptcy that always reminds me of one of my very first gaming consoles, not the first, but one of my first, uh, and that would be the Sega Genesis. But uh, without the Sega, let's go a little bit of Genesis back to the crypto space because we just can't get enough. Sure. So, but this one, so this Genesis filed uh, just about two weeks ago. It does look quite different though than what we're used to seeing in crypto bank bankruptcies. Uh, it appears for now to be focused on this very quick global consensus. The hope was to reach it by the end of January. It didn't happen. But there's a status hearing on uh, February 6th. So I think the idea is that maybe it will be reached before that. If not, there's this uh, ask for a mediation, for a court-ordered mediation process that parties will jump into. Um, there's a complex capital structure. So I want to quickly go over who the parties are. Uh, there's only three Genesis units that file for bankruptcy, and they were all part of the lending business. The parent, the digital currency group, was not is not a debtor. Uh, the Genesis 
pause withdrawals November 16th and then put in place a special committee to investigate the company just two days after that. Uh, the restructuring seems sort of primarily dependent on uh, a settlement and negotiations with uh, for just there's over about uh, 1.65 billion that Genesis is owned by its parents, the digital currency group, that includes a 1.1 billion note that's due in uh, June of 2032. Uh, so that's sort of a key aspect of the negotiations and uh, where recovers will come from. There's also potential deals going on with two uh, creditor groups uh, that represent, I'd say probably now over 2.4 billion of debt, uh, also reorganized or also organized before bankruptcy. Um, and the hope also stems primarily in large part from the makeup of these organized groups. Uh, and uh, it was noted at the first hearing that the groups also include Gemini. Um, so that's sort of uh, Gemini being, uh, I believe, Genesis' largest creditor uh, with over uh, close to 766 million of debt. So that, that's sort of the makeup of the group is also, is also important here. Um, timeline is aggressive. I think for crypto bankruptcies, as far as crypto bankruptcies go, bankruptcies in general, I think it contemplates a total of about 120 days in bankruptcy only, though Phil just talked about part of city too, as far as short timelines go. Um, they are always subject to extension, but that's what they've thrown out there now. Uh, there's this dual process. There's a plan confirmation process that they're hoping to, with a plan becoming effective sometime in May, by May 19th, I believe. And uh, there's also a separate marketing and sale process uh, that's also going on alongside that with a sale hearing scheduled to take place by end of April, it seems. Um, other... Uh, other specifics that also make this case probably easier. There's no need for dip here or cash collateral motion. The company has unencumbered cash of about 150 million and that's what they're using to fund the bankruptcy. Um, I, again, it seems like the goal is consensus, but if sort of I had to point out issues from where we're standing today, I'd say the investigation aspect here may raise some red flags. There's this internal committee that was put in place before bankruptcy and it's trying to sort of piece apart this uh, relationship and loans with a parent that could raise some red flags, even from like the US trustee, for example. Uh, you sort of, I mentioned Gemini before, it's largest creditors. They're, they're both facing an SEC uh, lawsuit. Uh, one thing sort of you see when, when Genesis filed, you see when this crypto company is filed, just how, how intertwined everything is. Uh, I believe another unit of Genesis sits in FDX or Secure Committee, for example. So it's sort of, you kind of see it whenever this company is filed. But this one seems to be different so far. So, I mean, uh, maybe a couple of quick turnarounds here from the land uh, bankruptcy, which uh, I guess will maybe uh, leave the slates wide open for what <laughs> over the rest of the year. Uh, but with that, uh, we'd like to thank our listeners for dialing in. Once again, I'd like to thank Phil and Nagisa and, of course, uh, Paul Goldschmidt from over at King Street uh, for joining us once again in this February episode of the State of Distressed Debt. And with that, uh, we look forward to uh, entertaining you all once again uh, in March. Take care. Take care.